Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's the fall of 1988, and you've been watching the mailbox like a hawk. Each day, you rush home from school and immediately open it up. But it's been the same story day after day. Empty. But you're not giving up hope yet. You know it's going to come, and that's just driving the anticipation. One day after you get home from school, you make your routine check. And there it is. It's finally here. In your hands is page after page of new insights, strategies, and a glimpse at what is yet to come. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, it's a look back at the origins of the beloved magazine that changed the way we approach video games forever. This is a story of Nintendo Power. When it comes to definitive objects and devices that represent the 1980s, the NES is right at the top of the list. Nintendo was the driving force behind a lot of kids' entertainment, and the games and company itself cemented itself as a cornerstone of 1980s pop culture. I have a previous episode all about the history of Nintendo, but here's the quick recap. Nintendo, as a company, goes all the way back to the 1800s when they created playing cards. Over the decades, the company branched out into other products, including electronics. In the late 70s, Nintendo released their first home video game system, the Color TV Game. But just before that system was created, Atari released the famous 2600 and dominated the home video game market. Going into the 80s, it seemed like they would continue to dominate for the rest of the decade. But that didn't exactly happen for Atari. It seems hard to believe, but there was a time when video games almost left us. Atari had ruled the roost for so long, but as the 80s began, competition came on strong, especially with things like the home computer. A lack of quality standards was also severely affecting Atari games. Third-party developers could just release a game for the Atari 2600, which led to a lot of substandard video games saturating the market. The low-quality games, multiple new game systems, high prices, and the home computer culminated in the great video game crash of 1983. Atari's value sank dramatically, and home video games looked to be going extinct. Arcades continued to hang in there, but the U.S. home video game market completely sank. After reaching a peak of $3 billion in 1982, revenue plummeted 
to barely a hundred million in 1985. Atari, the company that once ruled home video games, lost hundreds of millions of dollars and was sold in 1985. The infamous E.T. Atari video game is often blamed for the video game crash, but it really was a multitude of various factors that actually caused it. Major toy companies that had sunk a lot into electronics and video games in the 80s now wanted nothing to do with the games. But that company from Japan helped to right the ship. It started as the Family Computer, or Famicom, in Japan, but we would know it better by the name, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Now you're playing with power. And it was time for an overhaul for the tainted world of video games. If Nintendo was going to distance itself from the poisoned word video game, a new marketing approach was needed. And that meant a change in terminology. Joysticks were now control pads, Nintendo didn't have a game console, but a control deck. The game packs, and not cartridges, didn't go on top like an Atari, but into the control deck like a VHS tape into a VCR. Nintendo was not a video game machine, but an entertainment system. With the light gun zapper and the Nintendo Rob, Nintendo positioned itself like an interactive toy instead of just the next Atari 2600. Nintendo was ushering in a brave new world of home video game entertainment. Nintendo games also included a lockout chip, so third-party developers couldn't release inferior knockoff games. Each Nintendo came with the Nintendo seal of quality, so you knew you were getting the real thing. By early 1986, the NES hit North American shelves and took off like wildfire. In the second half of the 80s, Nintendo, and specifically the NES, was a huge part of many kids' lives. It was the perfect system at the perfect time, and we couldn't get enough of it. My friends and I wanted to master all the games we had, but in a pre-internet age, how do you get information? For kids of the 80s, our internet and social media was the school playground. This is where information got swapped back and forth. It's where we learned about the hidden warp zone in Mario that took us to levels 2, 3, and 4. My neighbor told me about another trick in level 4-2, where there was a secret vine that you took to worlds 6, 7, and 8. My favorite tip was learning about the glitch in level 1-3, where near the end, you could break the second block by the level ending pipe, jump backward while ducking, and you could walk through the bricks to go to the fascinating minus world. This is how we got information back then. Hours and hours spent exploring the various games uncovered secrets that were shared among friends. But what if you wanted to go deeper? Outside of going to work for Nintendo directly, we were pretty limited. Until 1987. This isn't the magazine quite yet, but the origins of it. 
something called the Nintendo Fun Club. The Nintendo Fun Club was a video game newsletter released by Nintendo and created by Howard Phillips. Phillips was one of the early employees of Nintendo of America. When the NES was first released, you may remember cards that came with the games and NES system that you could fill out to send back to Nintendo. Along with your name and address, the cards were a way for you to share things like your favorite games and characters. And with these cards, Nintendo was quickly gathering a lot of market info. With all this consumer info just willingly sent to the company by people everywhere, Phillips knew that kids wanted to know as much about the games as possible. They wanted to know how to beat them, and also what new games were on the horizon. The seeds of Nintendo Power were being planted. But it all started as the Nintendo Fun Club a bi-monthly newsletter that showed subscribers how to master the games you loved. The amazing thing, if you remember this, was that the fun club was free to join. The first issue shared that we could get video game tips from video game pros and get a confidential sneak peek at the hottest new home games before they were available in stores. For a young me, the words confidential sneak peek was all I needed to hear. I was sold on the Nintendo Fun Club. From the Internet Archive, Nintendo Fun Club Volume 1, Number 2, from the summer of 1987, shares about a new game coming out. A new game for adventurous players only. A game not for the faint-hearted video player, as it will make your nerves jump, your blood race, and your eyes pop with all the excitement. This is how we first heard about a new game called The Legend of Zelda. With the Nintendo Fun Club, you could even write in to share your best scores on your favorite games. The Fun Club eventually hit 600,000 subscribers, and the company was accumulating invaluable market research from all the kids writing in and sharing information about themselves, what they liked, and what they were hoping for from Nintendo. This simple newsletter looked like it could evolve into something more substantial. We'll pick this back up in a moment. But also in 1987, another way to get info about our favorite games started to emerge, a service that would eventually be known as the Nintendo Power Hotline. If you needed help with a game, you could now call up the Nintendo Hotline where you got to talk to a real person who served as a video game counselor of sorts. This was the dream job of all dream jobs. According to NintendoFandom.com, at the time of commissioning this hotline, 800 people applied, and only 33 were selected to be a coveted, all-knowing game counselor. These virtual gods of video games could help walk you through any difficult parts of a game that you were stuck on. It all started because when the NES launched, customer support was needed for general consumer support or for helping people get the system hooked up and connected. The support team started out small until they realized many kids were starting to call in asking how to find a certain item or finish a specific level. 
When they realized what they had on their hands, the phone lines were separated, with one side dedicated just to helping with the games. David Young was one of the original hotline counselors and explained in an interview with Vice News that it got to the point that they didn't want to just give away the secrets, but help guide people through the games. This allowed people to succeed on their own. That's a big feeling for a little kid. But everyone was calling, and the hotline center in Redmond, Washington, went from around six people to 60, and then many more. According to the New York Times, the hotline received 50,000 calls a week, not to mention 14,000 letters, all from people just trying to beat a game. Eventually, pre-recorded segments were added to the hotline to help the swarms of customers looking for common answers to the same two or three games. The counselors had fully drawn maps of the entire games, so if you were stuck somewhere in Super Metroid, the counselor knew exactly where you were and where you needed to go. But it wasn't just kids. Everyone called the hotline, including seniors. According to Game Informer, the week after Christmas was dubbed Hell Week after a new swarm of people got a Nintendo or new game. Even independent companies got in on the action, like the Nintendo Power Phone. Don't let Zelda down. Call the Power Phone. Dial 1-900-909-3500. Power up your game. Destroy Ganon and get a free Super Power Patch. Call the Power Phone for Nintendo players. Get the secret clues and tips on Punch-Out, Contra, Gauntlet, Kung Fu, Donkey Kong, Double Dragon, and more. Call now Even though they weren't affiliated with Nintendo, there was a market for offshoot companies to provide answers for people playing NES games. For just $2 for the first minute and $0.45 cents for each additional minute, kids were adamantly encouraged to ask mom and dad before calling. The Nintendo Power Hotline actually lasted all the way until 2005, but something new was about to hit the video game world. The Nintendo Fun Club was a huge hit, but since it was free, it was costing quite a lot to produce and distribute. Back in Japan, video game magazines were a big part of video game culture. A popular one from 1986 was Famitsu. It was based around the Famicom, or the NES as we knew it. Other magazines included Family Computer Magazine from 1985 and, also from 1985, NC Namco Community Magazine. In Japan, these popular magazines not only shared video game information, but also created a community of like-minded video game fans. It seemed obvious that this could work in North America, especially because of the success of the Nintendo Fun Club newsletter. Going into 1988, the free newsletter was abandoned and plans for a subscription magazine began. It would follow the concept of the newsletter but greatly expand on it. And this might be the perfect way to advertise new games and products. But first things first, what would it be called? After bouncing some ideas around, the tagline of Nintendo advertising, now you're playing with power, stuck out. The word power 
seemed like a natural fit to connect the product, magazine, and the branding. Because of the success of the Nintendo Power Hotline, the word power just continued the identity across the products and services. The name Nintendo Power was simple, straightforward, and perfectly captured the essence of Nintendo. Even though the articles and letters were created in the US, the magazine itself was constructed in Japan. Nintendo Power took everything that was working with the old newsletter and the phone line and launched in July and August of 1988. From beyond imagination, Nintendo proudly launches the official magazine of video mastery, Nintendo Power, full of maps, contests, game reviews, and score-blasting high adventure. The first issue of Nintendo Power was sent out for free to members of the Nintendo Fun Club. But $15 would get you a subscription for six issues. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $40. Not a bad price to unlock the secrets of the universe. Nintendo Power Magazine seemed as exciting as the games themselves, and the very effective marketing campaign made this feel like a must-have to get the most out of your games. And it would only set you back $3.50 a copy. I remember feeling like that was the deal of the century to be able to master the games you had or learn about which new ones you wanted to get next. It felt like you couldn't play the games properly without the magazine, as the ads told us to get the power, Nintendo power. Get the clues that you can use Nintendo Power. Higher and higher, fighting your way through enemy fire. Even the cover of the magazine told you that this magazine was the source for NES players straight from the pros. For a young me, this was the video game breakthrough I was waiting for. My parents wouldn't allow me to call the Nintendo Power Hotline after an incident in the 80s involving me running up a bill calling the WWF Hotline. I think I was hoping that Hulk Hogan would just pick up the phone, but it ended up just being a pre-recorded message from the Hart Foundation. The first issue of Nintendo Power happened to come out the same month as my birthday, so it went right to the top of my wish list. And I actually got three copies that day from various people, all assuming I wanted it. They were right. I'm not sure who I gave those other copies to, but I still have issue one to this day. Nintendo Power came out hot as the launch of issue one was built around the follow-up to one of the biggest video games in history. Everything 80s will return after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. 
That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. The cover of the first Nintendo Power featured a plasticine-looking Mario running with a carrot over a mushroom being chased by Wart. That specific character design from the cover may have looked familiar to you, especially if you ever watched the California Raisins in the 80s. The characters on the cover of Nintendo Power were created by Will Vinton of Vinton Studios, the claymation artist who created the Raisins. Vinton also created the Noid from the Domino's commercials. And I have a previous episode all about Domino's and the Great Pizza Wars of the 1980s. The character of Wart on the cover may have been something new for many people because the focus of the first issue was on Super Mario Bros. 2. We got 20 pages dedicated to the new game about to be released in September 1988. The release of the new Nintendo Power magazine timed beautifully with the hotly anticipated follow-up to one of the biggest games of all time. My friends and I were desperate to get any morsel of information about the brand new Mario game. The magazine was the perfect ad for the sequel to the original Mario Brothers, and we were willing to pay for it. This might remind you of the movie The Wizard from 1989 starring Fred Savage, which was basically just a commercial for the release of Super Mario Brothers 3. However, back in the fall of 1988, Super Mario 2 ended up being quite a departure from the original Mario Brothers, and you may want to keep an eye out for a future show all about that. But regardless of how different Super Mario 2 was to play, it was a massive hit. According to GameCubicle, more than 7.4 million copies of Super Mario Brothers 2 were sold, making it the fourth highest selling NES game ever and Nintendo Power played a big role in its success. But Nintendo Power was only just getting started. The magazine quickly had a profound impact on the entire video game industry. And it would also help introduce a new device that forever changed the way we played video games. Besides the 600,000 copies sent out to members of the Fun Club, another 3 million copies of Nintendo Power Issue 1 were printed. Nintendo had something pretty interesting on its hands, a direct way into people's homes to promote games, get consumer information, and people were willing to pay for it. Nintendo Power began with some specific features that ran for years. One section was called Classified Information. This is where the programmers shared their secrets and the right button combinations to play certain games as effectively as possible. These felt like genuine cheat codes with the programmers pulling back the curtain into the technical design of the games. This section even came stamped with a top secret logo right on the page. Another popular section was Counselor's Corner where the writers of the magazine would tell you how to get out of a section of a game that you were stuck in. 
questions on how to beat Mike Tyson in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, which felt like the unbeatable video game, were right there in the first issue. But there was more than just video game content. Nintendo Power also included comics like Howard and Nestor. Issue 2, released in September-October 1988, prepped us for Castlevania 2, providing 14 pages of the gory details we needed. That issue continued to explore Super Mario Bros. 2 and gave us insights from not just the pros, but again, actual programmers of the game. But this second issue already ruffled some feathers with parents. The cover of Nintendo Power Issue 2 featured Simon from Castlevania 2 holding a decapitated head of what appears to be Dracula. According to NintendoFandom.com, Nintendo of America was reamed out by parents everywhere, saying the cover was way too violent. Issue 1 had a nice, friendly, cartoon-like cover, and this was a stark departure. But from my perspective, this issue provided a map to successfully find my way through Bionic Commando, so that was the focus of a kid like me. The next issue of Nintendo Power arrived just in time for Christmas of 1988 with a focus on the game Track and Field 2. This issue also introduced Captain Nintendo, a short story about Brett Randalls, who works for Nintendo of America. One day, an explosion of microchips gives Brett superpowers, turning him into Captain Nintendo. This story laid the groundwork for Captain N, the Game Master, an animated series that debuted in 1989 on NBC. Captain N, the Game Master. Nintendo Power Magazine had caught on quickly. According to a December 1988 New York Times article, Nintendo Power quickly gained 1 million subscribers. This made it one of the largest children's magazines in the country, and they were only three issues in. The NES was already the hottest selling toy for Christmas in 1987, and by late 88, 10 million units had been sold. Nintendo had turned the tide after the video game crash. Sales were in the 1.7 billion range, and the company now controlled 83% of the market share. Aided by the success of Nintendo Power, the company was not only a financial powerhouse, but also created an entirely new culture among kids. But putting this magazine together was quite the ordeal. In a pre-email era, this meant multiple trips back and forth to Japan. Editor-in-Chief Gail Tilden regularly made the trips to make sure everything in the magazine was right. As 1989 began, one of the most anticipated issues yet of Nintendo Power was about to be released. The blockbuster review of Zelda II The Adventure of Link. The game came out in December of 88, and those lucky enough to find it under the tree that year, not me, were desperate for as much information as possible. Nintendo Power 
perfectly scheduled the release of the fourth issue that kids would pour over to find out everything they could to fully experience the new Zelda game. A magazine like Nintendo Power was tailor-made for the Zelda games. Zelda 2 was one of the most popular games of the year, selling over 4 million copies. According to VideoGameCharts.com, the first two Zelda games for the NES sold a combined 10.89 million units. These two games represented nearly 22% of the total games sold in the top 10. And if you were like me growing up, there was one specific issue of Nintendo Power you made a beeline for. The May-June issue from 1989 that would hopefully help you through one of the toughest NES games yet. Nintendo Power Issue 6 featured a huge 10-page feature on the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. Despite the strategy guide, I never made it past the water level. But you've probably noticed the trend here. A new game release and a new issue of Nintendo Power all about that game perfectly timed out with the release of said game. Issue 6 also featured the very first Nintendo Power Awards, as voted by readers. The award for best game overall went to Zelda 2. Mid-1989 was also a big time for Nintendo and Nintendo Power, as there was a new device and games that went with it that kids were desperate for and desperate to learn about. They said it wasn't humanly possible. All the power and excitement of Nintendo right in the palm of your hand. Introducing Game Boy. It's portable, it's in stereo, and its games are interchangeable. Game Boy comes complete with batteries and the outrageous new game, Tetris. And for head-to-head -head competition, use video link and blow your opponent away. The Game Boy was the hottest selling toy of 1989, and the September-October issue of Nintendo Power got us prime for it. Then, the November-December 1989 issue dove into what would become the flagship game of the Game Boy, Tetris. The cover of that Nintendo Power featured the famous Tetris shapes and a kid morphing into multiple pixelated versions of themselves. This issue was all about the Game Boy and focused on the NES version of Tetris to prep us all to get Tetrisized. Naturally, the next issue of Nintendo Power included a 16-page Tetris tip book. But if you remember the November-December 1989 issue, you may remember that it also came with one of the biggest inserts ever, a 36-page Dragon Warrior strategy guide in its own book form. This issue of Nintendo Power was also one of the most significant yet, as it also included a brief article on a movie I mentioned earlier, The Wizard. Nintendo was keeping the release of Super Mario Bros. 3 secret from Western audiences so it could be revealed in the movie. Even though Mario 3 had already come out in Japan, The Wizard was the official North American public reveal of the game. And Nintendo Power was slowly preparing us for this monumental game release with mentions of a movie that we probably wouldn't want to miss 
As printed in the New York Times, by Christmas of 1989, Nintendo had sold 20.3 million units and 101 million cartridges. And Nintendo Power Magazine already had 4 million subscribers. But this was more than just subscribers. It was technically a database, with consumers being added by the minute. Nintendo Power continued on through the 90s and well into the 2000s, but video games were changing, and we soon had a new way to access information. Eventually, instead of waiting for a new issue of Nintendo Power, we could just log on to websites to see game strategies, high scores, and video game news. Nintendo Power officially ended in 2012, a pretty remarkable run for a printed magazine. But it felt like the final closing on the world of video games in the 80s. A unique time when everything in the game world was new and exciting. When Nintendo Power ended, it was like that chapter of our lives also officially came to an end. It's pretty incredible that a company that started with trading cards back in the late 1800s is still with us today. Not only that, they spread around the world. And if you grew up in the 1980s, they were a cornerstone of the decade. The company positioned itself brilliantly, waiting for the dust to settle after the video game crash and reintroduce a new era of video games. The word video game had been tainted. But as I've shared before, it was the great 20th century philosopher Don Draper that said, if you don't like what people are saying, change the conversation. Nintendo changed the approach to video games, pivoting the industry and vernacular more toward being a toy and a home entertainment device. They successfully branded themselves across several platforms, and Nintendo Power Magazine was an instrumental part of the company's success. Nintendo has been described as being methodical and careful, and by using Nintendo Power Magazine, created both hype and brand loyalty that continued to steadily grow. Each new issue always coincided perfectly with upcoming releases, but also allowed us to appreciate the games we already had and get more out of them. Nintendo Power was the internet before we even knew what that was. It was like getting a secret key to the video game universe. For some reason, my elementary school library had copies of Nintendo Power. The issues were trash from so much reading and full of scribbled notes. There were also multiple missing pages from kids who had ripped out specific sections on a particular game strategy. Nintendo Power was a key part of the brilliant Nintendo marketing. It showcased the newest games and made them look like the greatest thing you'd ever seen that you just had to have. But then the games were also deliberately positioned to be tough to get. This was the specific approach that Peter Main took. Main was vice president of marketing for Nintendo of America, and his strategy was to, quote, take a product that is desirable and, through deft marketing, both stimulate demand 
and ration its availability, ensuring that Nintendo games are far more desired than readily attainable, unquote. Nintendo Power was a huge part of this marketing approach. Commercials for the NES games were critical, but they were over in 30 seconds, or you may have missed them altogether, depending if you were watching TV or what channel you were on. But with Nintendo Power Magazine, you were fully immersed in the world of Nintendo. The magazine had your uninterrupted attention, priming you for new games and creating that want. You could read it on the bus, after school, or before you went to bed. Nintendo Power helped to further create the culture behind Nintendo. This iconic magazine was part guide, part advertisement, a social networking community, and a giant hype machine. It was like a printed movie trailer for upcoming games. Before social media or internet forums, it's where you could write in to share your successes, but tell the company what you hope to see from them. Nintendo Power gave you a deep connection to the world that millions of people now shared. A new issue of Nintendo Power felt like the joy of a Saturday morning, but in printed form. The fact this magazine lasted for 24 years is a testament to not only the creative team that set it in motion back in the 80s, but the true love people have for this iconic company. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from in my previous episodes. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you're in a position to help support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. If you want to check that out or learn more, just head on over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80S. So thank you for spending your time with me here today. I know there are a million podcasts out there. So the fact you're here with me right now means the world to me. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.